Welcome to Inspiration, Influence and Impact, the podcast with your host, Karen Caswell. Listen as guests from all walks of life share where they have found inspiration, who has influenced them in their lives and what impact they hope to have on the lives of others. These stories not only connect and empower us, but inspire, influence and impact those around us often more than we'll ever know. We acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and all Indigenous peoples of the world as the traditional owners and custodians of country and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters, sky and culture. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Inspiration, Influence and Impact, the podcast. My guest this episode is an education practitioner and researcher and a self-confessed curriculum and pedagogy nerd. She works across a range of contexts to support the implementation of system and school-based initiatives. Her work highlights the connection between human cognition and sociality in relation to collaboration. I'm excited to welcome Joanne Casey to the podcast. Hi, Joanne. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Karen, and thank you for having me. For listeners who may not be familiar with your imprint on the world yet, can you please share a bit about your current context? So your location, your current work, and your passions, mission, or vision. Sure can. So I uh, live here on the wonderful Sunshine Coast in Queensland, and um, I actually grew up in Brisbane. So I'm a Queenslander through and through. However, um, my work uh, in recent past uh, has been that I've had three hats. So I was attached to a school and was supporting the implementation as a middle leader uh, of different initiatives. And um, I was also representing work across Australia for Mizano and um, the DeFore work with PLCs and Lynn Charrett's work. So depending upon my context, so I was um, at one point working with Independent Schools Queensland as a consultant and then as a training associate for Hawker Brownlow. So I had different roles within that, but the the work was very similar. Um, And then I had the hat of um, being at our local university, and I was working um, within uh, different courses with pre-service teachers and more recently leaders in master's courses. Um, So... Uh, I've been teaching since 1985 and left the classroom completely in 2018 when I was actually doing my PhD. So my passion, I'm really interested in schools and the way that they're organized, particularly because my, you know, when I first started teaching, um, I was very green and naive and, um, you know, I just gone from school to teachers college and then went into teaching uh, in schools but the context that I was in was not familiar to me because um, I was in uh, cath ed and I'm not Catholic so that was um, an interesting space in the 1980s and then um, I decided that um, I was as I said organization so I studied uh a graduate diploma in human resource management and industrial relations, which then went into a a master's of education and training plus leadership so that it was transdisciplinary. 
So I've always been interested in how schools work as organisations. And so my passion, therefore, is supporting teachers in doing the work that they do because I think if we have, um, you know, uh, if we support our teachers, then they support our kids who are at the heart of what we do in schools. And you've mentioned, I guess, that work you do in organisations and leadership. You've also recently published a book. Did you want to talk about that? (laughs) Yes. uh, So the book... um, you know, I, I talk about the book. The book is called Leading with the Social Brain in Mind. Um, my interest in how the brain worked uh, was when I, when I was about 12 years of age, my dad was 43. He had a cerebral hemorrhage. At the time, we didn't know what that was, and you, you need to understand that uh, that was in the 70s, and so medical technology at the time too didn't understand what was going on as mm-hmm. such. But we had fantastic medical practitioners who basically, you know, were supporting us by saying, look, you know, with each step, we think it's this, but, you know, we need to do that. And so over that period of time, um, they first of all didn't know that it was cerebral hemorrhage, wouldn't know until they operated and so forth. When he came through, which he did, uh, and that was something that we held our breath over because... Uh, the expectation was that that may not be the case. But what we um, were thinking um, that he would not, he would be paralyzed uh, and he ha- had no speech at that point in time. So we were very fortunate. We had uh, neighbors who were both um, physiotherapists and speech therapists, and they uh, supported us. And basically, uh, because we were young too, we expected dad just to get up and help and do the things that, you know, because we were still 12 and 8. And reflecting back and particularly as uh, being a teacher and thinking about those things, reflecting back, I was seeing neuroplasticity uh, in its um, very early stages and I didn't, I obviously didn't know that. No. Uh, fast forward and teaching um, in an independent school here in, um, on the Sunshine Coast and somehow got interested with a, a group of teachers around um, uh, Eric Jensen's work and others around neuroscience and, again, exploring how that uh, looks in relation to uh, what we did in teaching. And that led me to um, very much it's about the emotions and the social um, and coming across uh, Dunbar's work which basically, you know, when I was um, doing the leading of work in schools, I could see these really uh, strong pedagogical practices and, and I could see the foundations of those and the research underpinning them that said these are pieces of work that are fundamentally research and evidence-based uh, if they're employed, and I could see them employed in c- certain circumstances, and they were having huge um, gains for the for the students and the teachers in those uh, um, contexts, and yet in other contexts they were falling over left, right, and centre. So I kept wondering why. And there was this growing notion too of my colleagues being exhausted and overwhelmed by the uh, work. And over time, I could see that the complexity and the situation of teaching 
uh, was uh, there, uh, people, um, I'd say the broader community didn't necessarily um, acknowledge that. They just would say, our oh, teachers, you know, you get all those holidays, our oh, teachers. And so there was a what I call the iceberg effect. They they saw certain things mm. above the water, but they didn't see what was underneath. And uh, then particularly that notion of collaborating, uh, I would sit with our teachers and we would be collaborating around curriculum and the effort and energy that that took uh, and the time that that took. But usually what would happen is that because of the lack of funds or the way that people had to um, basically organise their school day, those kinds of meetings would happen after school mm. or they would um, happen within a very short time frame. And so people would just get into really uh, what I would call robust and deep discussions mm. and pulling apart uh, these curriculum documents or their own uh, documents and, and assessments and moderation and they'd have to stop it and move on or leave it or they'd have to do it in their own time. Yeah. So I, I looked at that and thought this is – we're asking people to do this collaborative work that is absolutely um, valuable and really important, but we don't have the systems in place. What we're doing is we're using an old model of education for a new way of working, mm. and that's where we're coming up against. So that's what was the impetus for the, the, um, the PhD. And I'd come across Dunbar's work and I emailed him. And basically Dunbar's work was that we have the capacity to uh, manage about 150 relationships at any one time. And I thought about that in relation to schools and particularly because we don't describe relationships in those way. We describe them in the collective. Mm. And very quickly, uh, and I use secondary context. Yeah. To, to begin with, and when, oh my goodness, if we are trying to balance those relationships, but with the demands of, you know, when we look at the professional learning standards or the professional standards for teachers, and then you unpack those or the curriculum documents, those layers with all of the other administrative pieces. So uh, things like trying to learn the different, um, you know, systems that are in place in schools, you know, just to record a behaviour management piece or even, um, you know, putting data onto a system takes time. Uh, creating an email for different audiences, we think that that is something that is just going to take five minutes. Mm. Well, it might if you're not already thinking about a whole range of other things and there are a number of pieces that are sitting on your shoulder that you know, oh, the bell is going to go in five minutes. I haven't eaten, but I've got to go and see so-and-so. There's this email that the deputy has asked me to, to respond to straight away. So there were all these pieces that I kept thinking, are we actually acknowledging those pieces of work? We say it on the one hand, but on, on the other, I don't think we actually realise uh, the intensity 
or the heaviness of that that load. So I undertook, uh, I, I contacted uh, Robin Dunbar and said, has this been done in schools? He said, no. So I went ahead. Uh, I When I was getting participants, one of the things probably that was the saddest for me was the lack of hope. People acknowledged and, and recognised what I was talking about and said, yes, but there's nothing you can do about it. You know, no one's going to do anything about it. And that gave me, um, I, I was really quite um, sad. And I, and I thought, okay, I'm only one person. What, what might I be able to do? So that's why the book, because no one's going to read a PhD thesis. Um, it's very Well, academic. some people like reading that. I don't. I don't. So. <laughs> yeah. Look, um, to be honest, uh, I don't know uh, many who would actually want to read 80,000 words. But um, what I wanted to do then was uh, basically honour my participants and also honour um, and find out whether others um, in schools were feeling the same way. Mm. So I did write a, an article for the Queensland Teachers Union, which was published earlier in the year, and um, people had reached out. And what was interesting was not just people in education. What I was surprised about was that other industries started reaching out going, you're talking to us, you, you're actually speaking to us. And I went, okay. So this was not something that um, was peculiar to education, mm. but I um interesting about education and particularly schools is that when people collaborate so in organization you know when they collaborate they can put their work to some degree on pause and um and what i mean by that is that you karen if you are being released to go and do a collaborative planning meeting you've still got a plan for the kids in your classroom and that means also planning in a way that whoever is taking that understands what you've planned for. Mm. And you make decisions. So you're already making decisions about what can be done without all of that other hidden knowledge that you've got there. And so you've got that and then you get to the meeting and you are actually are sitting around with this group of people and as you go through and unpack, you're trying to make sense of what other people are saying. So because we all come to that um, table with varying degrees of experience and knowledge, and so we talk about that shared understanding and trying to build that is that work of uh, what we call theory of mind, which is trying to make sense of what other people are saying. And that is cognitively... Um, taxing and we're constantly having to ask questions or clarify well if we are time bound we might we're then making decisions of do we really have time to mm -hmm. ask that question? let's just get on with it get the task done so that we can get out of here and do the next bit so it's you know and so there's this constant tension about well do we spend the time or do we you know so you're constantly balancing and one of the pictures that I've used at the balancing plate. And the interesting thing is that we don't actually ever seem to 
stop and take the plates off and just have less plates. Mm. It seems that we add more plates. And one of my participants said, sometimes it's just the colour of the plates that change, uh, but sometimes there's just we keep adding to it. So the book really was about trying to bring attention to, I think we have systems in place that need to be adjusted. And I know the likes of Hazi Salzberg and Glenn Savage and others have referred to um, that the system that we uh, have in place needs to be looked at. And so uh, I think that the, the challenge is that we have non-educators uh, buying into, well, this is how we can fix mm. it. Yeah. And they're quick fixes that mm. don't always work. No. As evidenced, if you've been uh, teaching for a while, we'll have seen so many initiatives or, uh, you know, now we're going to do it this way. Oh, no, that's not working. Let's do it this way. And, like, even that is taxing, having to keep up and yeah. adjust and, you know, it feels sometimes it feels like every five years there's something completely different. We're going to completely change the way we do things or we're going to add in this focus, um, you know, because I sort of also, reflecting on it, think about when I first started teaching, I was mainly, my focus was the academics. And then now we have so much more than, and and I, it's, I, um, I, I don't disagree. I actually think the um, the human side of things, like success, is not just academics. The you know who we are as people and and all of those things are the foundation for our academic success. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be focusing on it, but like you say, it's just adding more and more things, more and more components to our role as teachers. So there's that, and then there's also, well, okay, we're not adding a component, but we're changing the way you do it. That's right. And and the thing is that <clears throat> what we're not acknowledging either is the expertise that we actually have mm. in the system. So I'm, I'm going to give you one example. Uh, you know, we have always understood the value of play. And when we look at developmentally, you know, or we look at children and, you know, that there are so many uh, aspects of, um, you know, people playing that is, that's good for us as human beings uh, in so many different ways. And some years back, uh, I was in um, a school where, you know, the system uh, said, right, that's it. No, we need more academics. We're going to make early years more academic because we're falling behind mm-hmm. and we're going to. And the saddest part about that was that uh, we ignored the experts on the ground with regards to those who have been teaching and understanding uh, our children early years, you know, their de- uh, development and progression. And then um, I remember one of the strongest people that you know I'd seen working in early years, and I really valued her expertise. And she was such a, a wonderful teacher. And she said to me, "This is not right, but you know what? 
you know, obviously people far knowledgeable than I am mm. making these and they must know. And she would look at me and we worked together and I would say to her, okay, let's, how can we, with what we know and what we believe to be true about our kids and our context and the constraints that we are going to work, what might we do to play within and uh, those boundaries or those guidelines? So we did. We we created some, uh, and she's the most creative and innovative uh, teacher. You know, I'd seen it, and I mean, there are many, but to me, this particular person uh, really stood out for me. And um, and she did that, and she worked within those constraints. And about last year, two years ago, uh, not even that long ago, all of a sudden. Uh, there's this resurgent of play-based and we sat together and we just, you know, mm. shook our heads because all of a sudden now we're go- it feels like we are rewinding the clock mm. and going and saying, well, you know, so all these, you know, we have this expertise and sometimes we ignore it. Mm. And I feel that there is this with regards to literacy and numeracy. So Part of what I talk about in the book are siloed mentality, and I think that's where we um, need to look. We need to develop the skills in our. Um, we need to go back to those early childhood skills. Uh, teachers who have very great skills of listening, and I don't mean hearing, but listening mm-hmm. without judgment. So observing. And then um, creating questions. So, and using that as a tool to actually gain information, slow things down, and actually, um, you know, work within what they know rather than being rushed through based on adults, uh, what, what adults for, from a system perspective mm-hmm. uh, think they might need. Mm. And, you know, what I would question, are we doing the best by our children mm. because we've got these efficiency me- uh, measures in place? Mm. So, you know, the saddest thing for me is that um, I, I, you know, uh, this notion of data-informed practice, you know, I, I started teaching in a time where um, I didn't have spreadsheets, right? created notes left, right, and center. I am mm. posted, you know. But collating that was quite difficult. So the collation of those I- I- information took me more time. Mm. And I remember when spreadsheets first came in or the fact that I was using spreadsheets for the first What I was excited about was that this was giving me a way to look at my students and my classes and more broadly uh, the curriculum and my pedagogical practices to say what am I finding what what's missing you know and being able to maybe make different decisions had I not had this piece of information what I see now is that we have sort of pushed away the um, really rich uh, um, data practices so that 
observations, those mm, observations, yeah. um, conversations mm. with our kids and products. So that that stuff comes from Ann Davies, I, you know, COP. Um, but it was conversations, observations, and products. Well, I, I would put observations first and foremost. But knowing that observations, you know, what tends to happen is that we do that, um, we rush it. I think mm. for me, I, I like the work of Gert Beister and, uh, you know, he challenges, you know, us to think about a world-centred education rather than a child-centred education. And I think that's an interesting piece. He comes from this very philosophical background the questions he asks um, or provokes us or points us to gives me pause for thought and, and particularly in a world where, uh, you know, we ha have so much uh, access to information, our students have so much access to information mm -hmm. and how do we balance that with, you know, the kinds of things that are going to for me, stand the test of change. What will stand the test of change? And I suppose those notions of big ideas, um, you know, and for me what's really important is, you know, kindness and compassion, well, you know, in education. What does that look like from an academic perspective? Well, you know? Um, but as I said, I could talk forever. So I'll Yeah, and there's lots of things there that I'd love to talk more about. Probably the one thing I'll just add before we move on yeah, is um, I guess one of the things I find quite sad and disheartening is that children start school curious, eager, want to come to school, have lots of questions, and within a couple of years that's changed. And we we, as in the system, we do that to yeah. to our students, to our children. Um, you know, school does that to them. And that to me is just, I don't know how we can continue to not address that. Yeah. So I think what, what you've highlighted is what we should be focusing in on is a love of um, curiosity. Mm. And if you think about, you know, I, again, I've been, um, you know, I remember uh, a time where people would get, I, I had colleagues who would say, you know, students are so rude, they, you know, interrupt and, and they would be, and I'd say, but what we've come from is a, a place where students were expected to just keep quiet. Now we're wanting them to be asked questions or be curious. But where have we specifically in this context uh, showed them and um, taught them how to engage in those processes? Mm. And wouldn't it be exciting, you know, this is where um, the, the shared language across a school can work, you know, for us. I've been working with a school uh, in Melbourne uh, over the last seven years. And what's been exciting for me in some regards is the fact that what they've started to develop is um, a, a, a common language uh, around the teaching of reading that is actually uh, not specific to a particular program, mm. but it it unpacks, uh, you know, 
what what do we want our kids, you know, when we look at the curriculum or when we look at, you know, the Australian curriculum or even just more broadly, what do we want our students to be able to do and that, that love of reading and reading in its broadest terms. There are five semiotic systems, but we seem to focus in on two more than the others. And so one of the things that, you know, I keep asking and we keep coming back to is if our kids are going to talk about themselves as learners or as readers, what kinds of things will they be doing? And for me, the minute they say, I'm a level 20, Mm -hmm. that gives me the heebie-jeebies because how many adults come out and say, yes, I'm a level 20 or I'm a, you know, what I would, um, you know, suggest too is even from a, you know, that curiosity if I've got 23 students or 25 students who are curious, well, that can be problematic if I'm trying to just mow through. Yes. The, yeah. the, but if I've developed these beautiful routines that also have allowed, who have not just allowed, but encourage our kids to be curious by, you know, creating our wonder wall or creating spaces where they can ask questions and know that um, those questions, some may never be answered because Mm. that's what questions, but some can be and some can be answered by me, but some can be answered at a later date. Some can be answered by our peers. You know, for me, it's about that classroom culture and context but that takes time. What happens if I'm only developing it in one classroom? You know, then it's, and I don't expect classrooms to be carbon copies either. You know, it needs to be contextual Mm -hmm. for those. And teachers need to be able to be creative in who they are and individual. I don't don't want machines. That's that's the other thing. I don't want school to be a machine. Yeah. Yeah. No. There's lots of things that we can Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, and I probably go off on tangent. You know, this, the social mind basically is about relationships. At yeah. the end of the day, um, it's about relationship and it's not just about the brain. It's who we are uh, in our – it's an embodiment. Mm. Um, and I think so that's what resonated, resonated with me the most because, um, you know, it's a, that connection is, um, you know, really important to me but i i it's really important to everyone um and yeah i guess that that aspect of of the book um and how you can use foster those relationships or use you know in order to achieve whatever it is that an organization is trying to achieve yeah yeah and as leaders be aware um you know sometimes when we get into those roles we may forget uh, because of the, the specifics of our role, we forget the specifics uh, of the roles from a day-to-day practice. So whilst a, an idea may sound good in, you know, in theory, in practice, um, you know, and in one classroom or in one school, it might be absolutely amazing. But the school down the road or you know, 300k away or wherever, it, it needs to be contextualized. So what? So it's working out, okay, why are we doing this? What's the purpose? And, you know, the, the policies around that 
uh, understanding what are the fundamental guidelines, what are the must-dos, because that's the other part I, I've, it's really fascinating for me is I've gone into context and working side-by-side irrespective of teachers, um, deputies, principals, various leaders, even regional leaders, and I've and people will say to me things like, well, we have to do that. And I go, okay, can you show me the document that tells us that we have to do that? Mm-hmm. Where, where, where was that? Can you show me that? And they go, oh, it's there, it's there. And I go, yep, good. And I'll say, it's in the policy of blah. And I go, great, let's get that out. And once we actually unpack, sometimes uh, if the policy doesn't actually say that, the wording is not there. Even, um, you know, it's the interpretation sometimes mm. or they've heard it from somebody else who has heard it from somebody else who has heard it from somebody else. And, um, I, and I think that's one of the things where I would support our leaders is saying, take the time to, you know, look at what those things mean uh, in relation to the day-to-day practice of our, our staff mm-hmm. and for our kids. Time's a big thing, isn't it? We're going to move on. Where yeah. have you found inspiration and what impact has it had? Uh, I, I, you know, when uh, you sent that through, I, I was thinking about lots of um, things, my inspiration, I suppose, is uh, an eclectic uh, group of things. Um, educators, um, you know, day to day, you know, uh, like when I'm reading about different things, uh, my parents uh, who, you know, gave their all uh, to provide us with the best education and then make the most of that. So I do see education as a uh, to our open um, doors and possibilities. Uh, I, I love the work um, at the moment. I suppose it it, it changes over time. Um, my inspiration to uh, my grandkids, I've got eight. I come from a blended family, so they're my step-grandkids, but uh, the eldest one is 11, the youngest is two, and I often think about, you know, what will um, life be like mm. for them and particularly school. Um, yeah, I, I, I get inspiration from lots of different places. Um, mostly those educators that I've worked with, I've been very fortunate. You know, as I said, Robert Mazzano, I actually ha- um, did a an interview, like, and it was quite amusing uh, to, to be able to represent his work here. I had to interview for him. Uh, there was a panel, and it was very funny watching um, me basically take his work and then present it to him. And it was watching him; he was nodding. I remember him nodding and smiling. And what a, it, in some ways, it, it, even though I contextualized it, in some ways it felt like he was listening to some of his stuff for the first time. It, it wasn't obviously, but. That, that was quite daunting, but mm. I did respect. Um, and hearing him talk about his work and, and what is important about his work. And then, and the same with Lynn Sharrett. Um, I very much um, am in awe of, of uh, those people uh, because 
what I've seen is that they have at the heart, kids at the heart and teachers at the heart of what they do. But I've also seen how their work has been um, misused and misrepresented mm. by mm. other things. So, I, I, yeah, and the other one at the moment, I, as I said previously, is Gert, Gert Beast's work, which really sits uh, to challenge me in, in the way I go about the work I do. The next question was, I think you've sort of answered it, was um, who has influenced you and in what way? So did you have yeah. anything more to add to that or do you want no, to? I, no, I think so. I think I've spoken enough about it. That's okay. Or so we're up to what impact do you hope to have on others? Uh, you know, that word impact really um, over time has started to bother me <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, I always think of it, you know, a meteorite impact and, and I know in education we talk about, you know, having an impact. So I suppose what I would like to see is that maybe if I can nudge in small ways um, and have enough people nudging uh, in a similar direction and thinking about um, schools uh, as places of um, importance here in Australia, I think in other uh, cultures and mm. contexts, they, they see them as very important places. But um, here in Australia, I think we have a very mixed uh, and not necessarily a positive, uh, always positive view of what schools can and are or can be. So I would suggest that I would like to um, nudge us in a more positive direction. Yeah, and I think there's been a realisation, I suppose, like in my opinion, the media has a lot to answer for um, over the past, I'm going to say 20 years, probably the majority of my teaching career um, in terms of how our schools and teachers are viewed. And like you say, it's a skilled, um, it's a very skilled, very skilled job. Uh, yeah, and... But you also don't see anyone, a lot of people who criticise teachers and schools putting their hands up um, and willing to to take on that role themselves. That's right. And and I think what's fascinating for me is that um, those that go in and or who've sat on the outside viewing it have not actually spent any real time. They, they go in for five minutes or they have a quick conversation. And I'm not saying that that doesn't, uh, you, you don't get information, yeah. uh, but when you are day in and day out, uh, particularly in some uh, more um, challenging uh, contexts, mm. whether it be regional, remote and rural, or whether it be more uh, metropolitan uh, for varying reasons, mm. I, I think um, we have to, again, I'll come back to, you know, being observ observant mm. and listening, but listening not with suspend, sorry, listening to suspend judgment and even solution at the moment. I'm not saying don't, but some of those solutions may actually already be in place, but we're just not supporting them in ways mm. that need to be supported. Mm. Um, and I, I, I would suggest that um, let, let's think about, um, the, you know, with media, 
positive stories don't get clicks, you know. So the louder all the all the all the you know hundreds of comments on Facebook or yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. So I think it's um you know just we we have to keep you know uh, trying to support our um, and get a different voice out there, mm. but in ways that can attract attention in a more positive light. Yeah. And I do think we're probably at that at that crossroads at the moment. I do think there is the realization that we do need to change the way we're doing things, that the the continuing to do things that have been done for however long. Um, society has changed and yet we haven't seemed to have we I mean, there's been lots of changes. <laughs> I'm not saying there hasn't been a lot of changes, but I guess the fundamental foundation of what school is hasn't really changed that much or the belief of what school is but we're at that point in time where like you say let's take this opportunity to really dig deep and think about what are we doing what needs changing how can we do things better what's working well and then use that be informed about where when you think about the assumptions that are underpinned by um even uh, um, a, a full-time employee so that that notion of how we equate the number of hours and so so it's what's com- complex about this piece too is the fact that the humans and and government and various other you know stakeholders they want they want to know that they're getting value for their mm-hmm. money but what's not being costed is uh, all of those other pieces that uh, under the um, uh, iceberg, mm. and I suppose that that was my purpose of the book, mm. who was to really shine a light on some of these pieces that what we haven't, um, you know, acknowledged, and even our promotional pathway, um, you know, having a portfolio and a number of pieces to say that you are leading in a school. Um, so that you, when you go for your interview, you can talk to those pieces. They all add layers to mm. the work, and uh, and can silo. So, so unless we actually unpack some of the assumptions about the work and what is uh, considered a full time load, mm. then we need to um, and, and what's equitable. You know what? What do we mean by that? And comparing that to, um, you know, other uh, industries as well. It's very complex, and I think a lot of people just see it as simple. Oh, just do this, easy, done. No, won't work. (laughs) Well, you know, well, it's very simple. You can certainly say, "Oh, here we go. We'll throw this bucket of money at it, and then if you do this, this, and this." Mm. Good, look, we've got a solution. Mm. What we already realise about that is over time is that, yes, they may be in the interim or the short term a quick fix for some of the symptoms but not the, at the root cause. Mm. Yeah. And so and they're quite, you know, uh, w- when we start looking at that, that that's more messy and people – because it's messy, they want to stay away from that. Yeah. They may not get voted in again. <laughs> Possibly. 
Right, we're moving on to your inspirational, influential or impactful recommendations. Who should we connect um, with? Uh, look, you know, um, I would suggest, you know, topics of interest that, you know, if you're interested in literacy, then do that. You know, if you're interested in, uh, you know, particular aspects of curriculum or pedagogy, do that. The other part to that would be, Connect to people or connect to those topics that you may not um, or those people who may have differing opinions yeah. um, because my biggest concern uh, at the moment is that we are basically uh, being framed uh, and um, shaped by algorithms and sometimes if we're not aware of those mm. things, um, we can be siloed in yeah. the way that we think about a particular issue. And I think that that's, you know, when we, we, we see such dichotomy um, and, you know, I, I go back to uh, that fundamental critical lit literacy, you know, and those questions with uh, Luke and Freebody's four resource model. And, yes, I am showing my age, but I still think it stands the test of time with regards to uh, some of the questions that we can, you know, investigate when we are thinking about, uh, you know, what we read, what we listen to, who we're speaking to, and how we engage even with um, in, in an era of AI. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it's a, a fascinating time and how we might, um, you know, uh, push pause occasionally on some of those conversations or discussions so that we can just actually have time to think about it and reflect on those things. Mm -hmm. The next one is what book is a must read? Mine. <laughs> <laughs> Mine. Mine. No. Um, oh, look, I, I love picture books. Um, so um, I love Jackie French's work and I love um, – Sean Tan, I, I, you know, yeah. I, so I think for me, um, any of those works um, are, are great. I love Jeannie Baker's work. Um, I love her, her her pieces. So, and I think that you know, such a rich and the, and this again, you know, when you think about when they were actually written, um, think about some of the the topics that are. I think they still um, are current. So that for me is something that's important. I, I loved, um, you know, I, I read uh, with some kids uh, and the school that I was in was something like, I think it's about 95% um, EAL. And uh, what was interesting was that we read um, the true story of the three little pigs. <laughs> Uh, and then we watched, there's a Guardian video uh, that basically uh, gives a different perspective. And we, we had so much fun with that. So I think anything that brings you joy, really. Yeah. And a smile to your face. Definitely needed sometimes. Uh, what podcast is worth listening to? Yours. That's just um Edge Salon, again, you know, I listen to so many different ones, you know, um, and I, I jump in and out. And what's been really nice is with LinkedIn and, and Twitter, or, or mm. Twitter, whatever, 
Uh, what's nice is that um, I get, you know, uh, because of different people I'm following, you know, I'll, you know, there'll be some that come to my attention that would not have come to my attention um, previously. So I do love um, Deborah Nettlet. Yeah, I can't pronounce. Sorry, Deborah. Um, edgy salon. I, I, I've enjoyed that, but that to me is because of, of the systemness and and the big uh, organizational change stuff. But from a teaching uh, perspective, I, I've loved um, you know Parsi's work and listening to different uh, pieces. Mm. Do you have one? Do you have one that you can recommend besides yours? Uh, no, because I get lots of recommendations and listen to to lots of different ones. I think probably for me, and it probably wouldn't, I don't know if it would be one that you would listen to, but I guess because of the journey that I have taken in terms of getting connected um, and, you know, reigniting my passion for teaching um, would be Dave Burgess. Yes, with the teach, the teach Like a Pirate. Well, he wrote Teach Like a Pirate. Um, and that was sort of when I was on leave that I was talking to you about um, earlier yep. was one of the first books that I read and, um, yeah, really was influential in, I guess, changing the trajectory of my career and probably even my life. Um, so he shares stories that he's probably shared in books and blog posts. Um, sometimes he has guests and it's, it's related to education, but it's also just related to life and um, never having had the pleasure of like having a keynote in person from Dave. He is a very, very, very energetic uh, presenter. Yeah. And so like he, when you listen to him talk, you sort of get a little bit on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's nice. Yes. Yeah. So, and it's those, it, it's those that um, I think are really important. You know, I um, have always loved uh, Edward de Bono's work. Mm-hmm. And so I've actually gone back and started rereading some of his work. Um, but at the same time, I've been uh, introduced to Ian McGilchrist's work around the two hemispheres. Around. So I, I, I've got this, and, and then I'm interested in, um, you know, uh, my future. So with regards to financial future, so I, sometimes I listen to things like that and, yeah. okay, so there, there are, you know, a range. Yes. And I think it really depends on your interest. Yeah, it does. And, and uh, I haven't got one that I would just say, yes, yeah. Yeah. Do that. And, you know, like I say, different aspects of your life. So I know, like, I listen to some inspirational ones like Jay Shetty and, and Mel Robbins. Um, and then even, you know, I guess around the personal development of the psychology, the Brené Browns, yes. you know, her yes. podcasts. So, yeah, there it is. There are, there's probably podcasts for seasons in your life. Or, and Absolutely. Yes. Um, and then also for different aspects of your life. Yeah. But I still ask the question because then you, I love it. people may hear of one that, that, that yeah. sparks their interest. And- Absolutely. And Susan Kane, um, I don't know if you've heard of Susan Kane. She's, uh, I, I listened to her on a TED talk uh, around uh, introverts. Oh, yeah. So I liked that, that one too. And that was an interesting one. And I've been working, uh, as I said to you, um, been listening to uh, different industries. Got some um, colleagues or connections who are supporting me with uh, building my knowledge in that space too. So I get to listen to those. Yeah. All right. The next one is what cause should we support? Um, 
Oh, anyone that um, supports peace more broadly. And the last one is, where is your dream travel destination? Anything with a white Christmas. <laughs> I just, um, and, and I, here's, here's a sad thing to know about me. So I, at the moment, because, and it's beautiful weather here in Queensland and, and hot and summer, yeah. and we're coming up to Christmas. So I have been watching all the very, very, very bad uh, Christmas movies. Um, like all the Hallmark Christmas movies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything that has snow in pretend. And I have to, you know, this is this is the funny part. I have to switch my brain off with regards to the literature side or the literacy side because I'm looking at it and analysing it and going, oh, my God, this is a terrible movie. <laughs> but I don't care because I'm like, oh, my God, look, there's snow. And it's not even real. But anyway. You've got to have some of yeah. that. Yeah. In your life. <laughs> yeah. And Zurich. Zurich is always, and, you know, I do love, uh, I did say this earlier because I was in um, the UK earlier in the year and we flew Swiss Air. So you've got to love a, a, a and I, it's not a, this is a plug, but it's a plug because they serve chocolate. Oh, um, Swiss breakfast chocolate. lunch. And yeah, that, breakfast that. lunch and dinner. And, you know, I'm a chocoholic, so. <laughs> any, any, um, White that does that, I'm, I'm pretty happy with. Yep, sounds good to me. The last thing is for people who want to connect with you, what are the best yeah. ways for the listeners to engage with you? Uh, probably LinkedIn and uh, Twitter, uh, mm-hmm. well, X or whatever it is. I've probably been a bit more quiet on Twitter lately, but um, certainly um, LinkedIn, mm-hmm. yes, they can find me. Well, thank you so much for sharing. There could have been so much that we could have continued to talk about and delve into and dig deep. Um, but I appreciate your time. And oh, sharing. I appreciate yours, particularly on your holidays, Karen. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. And I hope you found something inspiring, influential or impactful to take away. I'd be honoured if you shared the podcast with friends and colleagues and would greatly appreciate it if you could show your support by subscribing and leaving a review and rating for the podcast. Please connect with me on social media at at KCASW1 on Twitter and at authenticity underscore in underscore edu on Instagram as I'd love to continue the connection.